Good morning. I'm going to begin by reading the passage, uh, and we'll read all of 1 Corinthians 13, even though our focus this morning will be on verse 7. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul's final declaration in this what love does passage in verses 4 through 7 is every bit as lifestyle changing as all that we've already seen in this great chapter. Here's that last declaration, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The word translated all things is explicitly tied to each of these four attributes of godly love. And that means that there are no exceptions. There are no compromises. There are no special cases in our lives to which these things do not apply. If in our day-to-day -day thoughts and actions we limit the application of this forceful exhortation to some things instead of to all things, we will rob it of its revolutionary intent. I agree with Thomas Schreiner's observation that verse 7 presents a simple chiasm, A, B, B, A. The first and the last attributes of love mentioned in the verse have a common emphasis, and the two middle attributes have a common emphasis. In other words, bears all things is tied with endures all things. Believes all things is tied with hopes all things. Those two pairs of attributes provide the basis for my 
simple two-point outline of this verse. First, love weathers every challenge. And then secondly, love always expects good things. The first attribute of agape love that Paul sets before us in this verse is that love bears all things. The meaning of the verb here has been understood by some as to protect rather than to bear. But every other time Paul uses this word in his letters, it has the connotation to stay the course, to persevere in the face of difficulty. Back in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, after asserting the expectation that, that those who preach and teach the gospel would be supported financially by their fellow saints, Paul said to the Corinthian saints, If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. I chose the NIV translation there because, uh, for, for reasons, because that phrase, we put up with anything, I think really nails the meaning of, of the, the word here. It's the same phrase, put up with anything. It's the same phrase that's used here in 13.7, right at the beginning of the verse. Paul refused to accept any financial gifts from the Corinthian saints because he did not want to give any appearance that he was participating in their worldly approach to well-being. So Paul and his co-workers were, were willing to bear, they were willing to put up with any level of financial hardship in order to honor that commitment before God for the sake of these distracted Christians in Corinth. So the first attribute of godly love in 13 verse 7, chapter 13 verse 7, is that love bears all things. Love takes whatever comes in order to continue loving well. It put up, puts up with anything. <laughs> and the operative word when I say it takes whatever comes is the word whatever. <laughs> if we water that down any, <laughs> we will miss Paul's meaning and the intensity of this exhortation. The last of the four attributes of godly love mentioned in verse 7 has a very strong connection with the first. The last of the four is endures all things. The verb here means to remain or stay behind after others have left. It's the same word that, that Luke uses in Luke chapter 2, verse 43, as he's relating the account of Jesus speaking to the Jewish religious leaders at the temple in Jerusalem when he was a teenager. The feast of Passover had just ended, so Jesus' parents headed back to their home in Nazareth, unaware that their 12-year-old son, Jesus, had remained behind at the temple. And that's the wording used, remained behind. When Jesus' parents returned to find him at the temple, and they asked him why he hadn't stuck with them, he answered, why is it that you're looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? See, Jesus stayed put, because he was right where his father intended for him to be, doing exactly what his father intended for him to be doing. That's what the agape of God does in us. Whatever arguments anyone else might raise for throwing in the towel on 
loving the unlovable, <laughs> those who love with godly love remain. They stay put. When all others have left, those who love with godly love are right where they were the whole time. Just as God does not react to what his creatures do, but always acts in keeping with his heart, with his decree and with his character, in the same way, the love that God has shed abroad in our hearts is never a reaction. It's always an action that remains on its course, unswayed by the response of the one being loved and undeterred by the opposition of those who cannot or will not embrace its Christ-focused agenda. The, the reality of living life as an action rather than a reaction is one of the most transforming things about Christianity. There are so many people in this world who spend their days and their nights reacting instead of acting. But the believer, the child of God who loves with the love of God, is always acting. He's always he is always moving in a direction that is already determined because his agenda is determined by God. When God hands you an assignment to live out the love of Christ toward a brother or sister in Christ whose suffering feels to you like it's more than you can continue to share even for another moment, the overflowing fountain of God's already proven love toward you keeps you right there in the thick middle of that suffering, joyfully useful on God's behalf. Proverbs 17, 17 puts this very well. It says, a friend, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. I think that's just beautiful. I can't count the number of times that my brothers and sisters in Christ from this body have dropped whatever else they had to do in order to love and serve others in this body of believers, including me and my family. I've seen it over and over and over. When God hands you an assignment to live out the love of Christ toward a person who displays no inclination to love well in return, who takes and takes with little thought to giving, who rarely even gets around to asking the first question about how you're doing, but, but can talk for hours about every detail of his or her own personal struggles and complaints, you don't throw in the towel. You stay put. Because your life is not a reaction, it's an action. You know that whatever you must endure to continue loving that person on Christ's behalf pales by comparison with what Christ put up with and still puts up with every day to love you with the amazing love of God. Now that doesn't mean that you never say anything to challenge another brother or sister in Christ when that person is being insufferable, especially if he or she is a, is a is a brother or sister in Christ. We tend to have this false dichotomy in our heads that says we can't love someone and rebuke them at the same time, but God does both toward us on an ongoing basis. In fact, you can't possibly read 
this epistle of Paul all the way through without having that, that reality right in your face over and over again. Love corrects. Love rebukes. Love speaks the truth always. Our assignment is to speak the truth to one another in love. Not in self-indulgence, not in arrogance, but in love. The truth is often painful, but the truth always makes us free. Now, some of us may be thinking, okay, these are lovely sounding words, but I just can't live like that. I'm not Jesus. I have to live in the real world, <laughs> and, and this, is not this is not how things work. I can't keep giving and giving when my own needs aren't being met. And I certainly can't keep giving and giving to someone who never gives back. Make no mistake, beloved. Paul is saying to you and me, <laughs> that's what God's love in us does. That is what every child who has been made the recipient of the boundless love of God is called to do to others. This is our assignment individually and as a body united in Christ. <laughs> you want to know God's response to us when we say, I'm not Jesus, so I can't ex be expected to do what Jesus did? Here's his response. It's in Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. It's written to every single one of us who belongs to Jesus. Therefore, <laughs> be imitators of God <laughs> as beloved children. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. <laughs> we, if we say to God, I'm not like Jesus, so I can't be expected to do what Jesus did, God says, sorry, that doesn't change the assignment. You do as Jesus did to you. Beloved, self-denying love is of the essence of following Christ. Let me say that again. Self-denying love is of the essence of following Christ. We love God and we love those created in the image of God with no cause other than that God loved us and sent his son to die for us. If he hadn't, we wouldn't know the first thing about love. The perfection of God's love was demonstrated in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the utterly undeserving. While we were yet sinners, enemies, rebels against God, Jesus died in our place to pay the infinite debt that each of us owes to God because of our sin. Many of us in this room have experienced disappointment, betrayal, or even abandonment at the hands of someone that we love. But the love of God does not do such things to us, and it does not do such things through us to others. We can absolutely count on the fact that our Lord and Savior will never abandon or forsake us. The shepherd and guardian of our souls loves his sheep with steadfast, promise-keeping love that cannot be touched by anything in his creation. The love of God puts up with 
every challenge and it stays put <laughs> even when everyone else has given up on loving. Love, the second supernatural attribute of godly love that Paul sets before us in verse 7 is that love always expects good things. Love believes all things and hopes all things. Paul's not saying that love ignores sins and failures in our brothers and sisters. He's saying that, that love banks on the promised work of God that God has done and is doing in our brothers and sisters. See, the only thing in me that's worthy of any, anyone else's trust or confidence <laughs> is Christ in me. And that's precisely the thing that Paul is talking about here. As we go about loving other people with the steadfast, promise-keeping love of God that God has already lavished upon us in Jesus Christ, we love those other people believing the promises of the promise-keeper, not believing their promises, not believing promises that originate from fellow sinners, but believing the promises that originate from God. We love others in eager anticipation of the fulfillment of God's promises. And we do so not merely thinking, but knowing that God is accomplishing eternally good things in our brothers and sisters in Christ, even through his love that he's put in us. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that the good work that he began in each of his children, he will perfect until the day of Christ's return to claim his bride. Philippians 1.6, Paul gives us that promise. See, love expects good things from one another in the body of Christ because of God, not because of one another. <laughs> See, you have a very good reason to expect to see Christ put on display through my words and my actions on a daily basis, but not because of anything that originates with me, only because of Christ in me. Our expectation that our brothers and sisters in Christ and that we ourselves will be useful and mightily used by God is entirely because of the one who indwells and empowers us. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 17, and please listen carefully. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, and everything else that he's going to say in this paragraph flows from that. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So, so what was the goal? What was the objective for which Christ died? To change what we live for. To, to make us stop living for ourselves and start living for the one who died and rose again on our behalf. And then he goes on, he says, Therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. From now on, beloved, we recognize no man according to the flesh. If you're not in Christ, you're still dead in your sins. If you are in Christ, we recognize you as in Christ. We see Christ in you. We look for Christ in you. We expect to see Christ in you. What most occupies your thoughts and, and the words you speak to others with regard to your brothers and sisters in Christ that God has put most pervasively in your life, the ones that you know the best, especially those that have the greatest impact on your life? Do you rejoice? knowing that God is faithfully working in each of those brothers and sisters to cause them both to will and to work for his good pleasure, as Paul says in Philippians 2.13? Or are your thoughts and words regarding those other believers filled more with low expectations and criticisms than they are with confident expectations of the good things that God promises he is doing in their hearts? Do you want your fellow saints to see only the residue of the old man when they look at you? That old man is readily apparent. He's not hard to see. Or do you want your fellow saints to look with eyes of faith when they look at you? Not faith in you, faith in God. Eyes that expect to see the new man that God now declares you to be? Do you see your fellow saints with those eyes of faith that count as true the precious and magnificent promises of God? <laughs> Let me ask you a couple of questions. Do we or don't we have a good shepherd whose sheep know his voice and follow him? Not perfectly, but indeed. Do we or don't we have a perfect heavenly father who knows exactly how to teach and discipline his kids in order to make us mature and useful adults? To grow us up into one head who is Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong, beloved. The writers of the New Testament found much to criticize and correct in the first generation of Christians. This very letter makes that very clear. But that correction by one Christian toward another Christian is never to be in a spirit of anger or fear or hopelessness. It is never to be from low expectations. The Apostle Paul, who included so many painful corrections of the Corinthian saints in this letter, is the same Paul who began this letter with this powerfully affirming prayer, starting in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also 
confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. <laughs> Jesus is the cause of our godly love. When we first came to the what love does passage in verses 4 through 7, I said that I would bring every part of this marvelous assignment right back to Jesus, the only perfect example of godly love and the cause of that love in each of us. Here in verse 7, Paul tells us that God's love in us puts up with every challenge and it stays put when everyone else has left the room. Jesus is the perfect example of how that love is lived out. Listen for a moment to the, the well-known account of Jesus and the man that his disciples had been unable to help. Matthew says, When they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him, before Jesus, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? And that word put up with you is the same as in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. It's the word to bear. How long shall I bear you? And then Jesus said, bring your son here to me. And Jesus rebuked him and the demon came out of him and the boy was cured at once. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately. And that's when you, we very often get the, the full force of what Jesus was doing in a particular event or parable. In this case, a real, real event. They came to Jesus privately, the disciples did, and they said, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible for you. Jesus' question in verse 17 of that passage is piercing. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? But we know his beautiful answer to that question, don't we? Jesus stayed on this cursed earth and he put up with people like you and me until he had finished doing absolutely everything necessary to save us. Until he had finished what his father had sent him to do. If he had not stayed put and put up with sinners until that saving work was finished, Every last one of us would be everlasting toast. <laughs> you and I will never have as much reason to give up on a fellow sinner as Jesus had to give up on us and on all mankind. And I give him more than sufficient reason to be done with me, to give up on me every single day of my life. But beloved, I know that's not going to happen because he promises that it won't. Think about what Jesus endured to make us the eternal objects of his love. The suffering of Jesus 
the agonizing pain experienced by the Lord of glory for our sakes did not begin the night he was arrested. It began the day he was born. Every minute of his life here under the curse required a supernatural forbearance and perseverance that was driven by the same agape, the same God-sourced love that sent him here in the first place. He's the source. Jesus is the source of that love. Our Lord's amazing forbearance in kindness and love toward his own disciples, people like you and me, was grounded in his decreed purpose for calling them in the first place. Jesus revealed that purpose to those men. He never wavered in that purpose or in that forbearance. He never wavered in his confident expectation that he would accomplish that purpose in and through his disciples and all who would come to faith through them. Here's his declaration of that purpose. John 15, verses 12 to 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Again, everything else in the passage proceeds from that. He also ends with that in this passage. Let me read it again. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You want to know Christ's purpose in us? That's the heart of it. Now, he goes on, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. And then verse 16, this is, this is great. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Our Lord's confident expectation of the eternally good things that would be accomplished through his disciples was grounded in his own decree concerning his disciples. He had loved them, chosen them, called them, and appointed them in order that they would love one another just as he had loved them. And in order that they, walking in that love, would go and bear fruit and that their fruit would remain. <laughs> Do you think... Jesus agonized over whether the things he promised in those verses were actually going to happen? Do you think he wondered if his disciples would actually prove to be loving and useful? Not for a second. He decreed those very outcomes from before the foundations of the world. His expectation regarding his disciples was a certainty. Our confident expectation of the eternally good things that God is going to accomplish through our brothers and sisters in Christ and through his church is grounded in those very same eternal decrees. Beloved, we have every reason to expect good things from one another because of Christ in us.
let me wrap this up. His, his love in us. Now, when I, what I want to do here is go back to the back, kind of walk through the points that we've already seen in verses four through seven. God's love in us forbears in kindness with no concern for self, with no effort to protect or avenge or vindicate self, with no jealousy, no boasting, no arrogance. Because our great God and Savior emptied himself in matchless love, bearing upon himself the reproaches that we had hurled against God as sinners and enemies and rebels. And he persevered in that love in order to save us for himself forever. His love in us does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth together with the truth, in relationship with the truth. Because that love was made ours by the righteous one who is the way, the truth, and the life. His love in us weathers every challenge, every frustration, every cause it ever encounters to stop loving. Because His love endured all things for us. His love in us never ceases to anticipate good things in our brothers and sisters in Christ because He has made us the children of the Most High God, fellow heirs with Christ of God Himself, together with one another. He will not stop His work in each of us until He has completed it until that day of glorification when he has conformed us to Christ. His promises determine how we see one another. There's one more thing that Paul says his love in us does, and it, it, it's found at the beginning of verse 8. His love never fails. Because that declaration makes the transition into the last big theme of this chapter, I'm going to wait until next time to talk about it. The love of Christ in us now controls us. His love is our new nature. His love now makes us see Christ in one another. Our assignment is to abide in His love. His promise is to show Himself off through us to one another. <laughs> and to every soul that he intends to make his own through the love that he has shed abroad in our hearts. Dear Father, we ask that you would make us to live in such a way that everybody will know whose love they see in us. We ask this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.